Again, I'd like to say good morning to you all. It's great to see you. And uh, we're going to begin a series today on the book of Judges. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to lead us in prayer as we prepare to go into the message. And then I'm going to begin the message. And I'll be reading from the scripture as, uh, as we go into the message, as we go through the message. So I'm not going to read first. I'll be reading as we go into it. Um, I'd also like to draw your attention to the fact that in your worship bulletin, as you open it up, you're going to see um, an insert there that has um, the judges listed. And you will be um, able to refer to that during the course of the message. Do you see that in your bulletin? You just pull it out. And you want to keep your Bible in front of you also today because we're really going to be doing Bible study together. Uh, there is one uh, error on this list. I just want to draw your attention to it. Um, if you look down the left column has the number, which number judge um, is covered uh, and where it is, who the judge was, uh, how long they reigned or how long um, peace was in the land, and then the scripture references. So you see that. And you'll see a couple things. One thing you're going to see is that uh, the book of Judges doesn't cover all the judges. It doesn't. Uh, there were other judges besides Samson, who's the last judge covered in the book of Judges. There was Eli in 1 Samuel. There was Samuel in, uh, in 1 Samuel. Now, on the numbering, the error is this. When you look at Samson, the number beside him is 13. That's not correct. There were 12 judges and judges, which means one of these 12 people uh, is, uh, it was not a judge in the list. If you come down to the one that's numbered six, Abimelech, he was not a judge. He was not a judge. So cross him out, not him, but the number six. We'll come to him, but uh, that will make the numeration correct. There were, there were 12 judges. We, want to, we definitely want to get that right. All right. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for your mercy and your goodness to us in Christ. We confess your mercies are new every morning and that your faithfulness is great. And so we ask you now to be with us as we look at this portion of your scripture that is very, um, very important, yet also in our ears understandably uh, strange and, uh, and even disturbing. And so... May you have your way in us and with us in this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have been looking at this book. I've been studying this book. I've got all kinds of commentaries on this book. And I've been dealing with this book for the last couple of months. And I have really come to be convinced that um, before we can think about how this book speaks to us, we need to reconsider among ourselves what the book of Judges actually is. So most of these remarks in our Bible study together will be pointed at that, but you'll feel and sense the application as we do this, and I'll be drawing application at the end for sure. What is this book of Judges in the Old Testament? The name is an English rendering of a Latin title for the book that was created by St. Jerome in the 4th century A.D., when he translated the scriptures into Latin, into what was called the Latin Vulgate. So the name Judges isn't original to the text, and I don't think it's a very good choice, but I haven't come up with a better one. And if I did, I don't think anyone would care. 
But because of the name of this book and the way the stories uh, in the book of Judges are recounted, particularly in Lessons to Children, I think the, the book of Judges is widely regarded as a book of heroes, about the heroes that God raised up to deliver Israel in the period between Joshua's initial conquest of Canaan, coming into the promised land, and the rise of the monarchy and the kings in Israel. There's this bridge period of time, and there was, and there were these leaders, and they were called judges, and I think that uh, many people will view the book in that way as a book of heroes. And, it, you know, it, it makes sense. If you just think with me about it, think about the judges we're familiar with. Many of you are familiar with Ehud, the famous left-handed judges who killed that fat king Eglon so that the folds of his fat came over the blade of his sword. I love that story. I love that story. Many of you are familiar with the female judge, Deborah, unique because she was a woman. Or you're familiar with the story of Gideon who tested the Lord with a fleece and he went on and he defeated Midian with just 300 soldiers. Many of you are familiar with Samson and his long hair and his mighty strength. And you read these stories and you say, wow, this is, the, this is the stuff of legend. But the legend is in Jewish and in Christian tradition. The legend is not in the Bible. The book of Judges is no book of heroes, which is why when so many people first read this book, they're especially shocked. Seems like a bait and switch. It's not really what I expected. And as you go through the book of Judges, if you read it all, you read it fairly, you read it honestly, I think you'll conclude that it tends to be dark, uh, disturbing, and increasingly intense. And the first two chapters in the book actually describe why. And what those chapters talk about isn't judges. What those chapters talk about is what happened with the third generation of Israel. In other words, not the generation that came out of Egypt. They died in the wilderness. Not the generation that came from the wilderness, that was born in the wilderness and then first entered the promised land with Joshua. But the third generation, the generation born in the promised land, the first generation in the promised land was the third generation in that sense, of Israel. And what the first two chapters describe is what happened after Joshua died with that generation. And to make a long story short, they failed to complete the conquest of Canaan, which God had commanded. With the exceptions of Judah and Joseph, were the first two tribes mentioned in chapters 1 and 2, Israel simply did not drive the Canaanites out. And the issue was not that they tried and failed. The issue was that they did not even try. They simply didn't do it. And so five times in chapter one, you see the sequence. There'll be a tribe named, followed by this refrain, did not drive out, most often it says, did not drive out the inhabitants or a tribe. So you'll read in that chapter, Manasseh did not drive out, Ephraim did not drive out, Zebulun did not drive out, Asher did not drive out, Naphtali did not drive out. This generation who's responsible for this is described in chapter 2, verse 10. I told you we'd be looking at the scriptures, you go through the sermons, I hope you have your Bible open. The generation is described in chapter 2, verse 10 in this way, 
that there arose another generation after them who entered the promised land. There arose another generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And because they did not know the Lord and they did not remember, they forgot the work that he had done, they forgot who he was, they entered into covenants with the Canaanites. And so over time, they became Canaanized. That means they became as pagan in their faith, they became as depraved in their practices as the Canaanites whom God was judging. Judges chapter 2, verse 1, the angel of the Lord spoke to this generation. He said to them, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? From there, we see unfolding in the book of Judges this, this sort of pattern that the Lord declared would occur. The people, as they sink into spiritual and moral depravity, come under the God's judgment. And the judgment most often, not always, but most often, is in the form of oppression from one of the peoples whom Israel was supposed to have driven out one of the peoples with whom Israel had compromised. And so this goes on for years, and the people cry out in pain, and then the Lord raises up a judge to deliver them. The people have relief, and then the pattern is, is repeated again. But even to say the judges is the record of a cycle of rebellion, retribution, God's judgment, and then rescue, repeated again and again, actually misses the point of what was happening. So what I want you to do is look with me at Judges chapter 2, verses 18 to 23, in your Bibles, or I think it's listed in your program. This is what we read. The cycle that I'm talking to you about has been described, and picking it up in verse 18, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and became, listen to this, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And notice in particular in verse 19, but whenever the judge died, 
they turned back and were, what's the next word? More. They were more corrupt than their fathers. In other words, they didn't leave any sins behind. They added to them. You know, generations, you feel like this in this generation, the last 50 years, can't get any worse than this. Wait, yes, it can. It can. Yes, it can. So Judges really is not the record of a cycle that repeats itself. It is the record of a spiral downward. Not a cycle, but a spiral downward. And this book, honestly, is a testimony to God. How he preserved his people who otherwise, surely, would have destroyed themselves. That's what this book is about. How God preserved his own people. Otherwise, they would have destroyed themselves. Let me make the point. The book of Judges is not all about Judges. There's no mention of Judges in chapter 1 and 2. And there's no mention of Judges in chapters 17, 18, 19, 20, or 21. The last judge who's mentioned is Samson, number 12, not 13. And he died at the end of chapter 16. But when you come to those last five books, the chapters of Judges, Judges concludes with a high view as the most disturbing account in the Bible. You may think of others. But Judges concludes with the appalling, gruesome, murderous rape of a Levite's concubine. Now, Levi wasn't necessarily a priest, but you know they were, they were supposed to be the spiritual leadership tribe of Israel. A Levite's concubine. This woman is totally ravaged, destroyed, killed. And this happens in a village that was, under the, uh, that was inhabited by people from the tribe of Benjamin. And in response, the other tribes of Israel, outraged, as if they couldn't imagine doing such a thing, outraged, rise up together and nearly wipe out the entire tribe of Benjamin. As if their rampage against Benjamin... They're killing, slaughtering virtually everyone of the tribe of Benjamin, except for about 600 men. As if their rampage somehow vindicates them, these other tribes, vindicates them from sharing in the guilt of the crime that occurred in the territory of Benjamin. And I hope that you feel the irony of this. In essence, the irony is the Canaanites are us. We are doing the very things the Canaanites did. And now, instead of, because, and, and instead of driving the Canaanites out, we're destroying ourselves for it. The Canaanites are us. If God had not been intervening, Israel would have destroyed itself. And that is the testimony of the book of Judges. But for the kindness and the perseverance of God, in what he did. Now many of you have been taught that the key refrain in the book of Judges that explains Israel's repeated lapses is this. You've heard this. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what is right in his own eyes. How many have heard of that? Many of you have heard of it. you ever studied the book? Yeah, right. But I want to say Okay, it's a refrain because it occurs twice. 
But it only occurs twice, in chapter 17 and in chapter 21. There is another refrain that occurs seven times, and that I think is truer to the spirit and to the message of the book of Judges. It occurs seven times with small variations, but it's clearly the same refrain. It goes this way. The descendants of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Chapter 2, 3, chapter 4, 6, chapter 10, 13, seven times. They forgot the Lord. Now, if you're wondering who were the Baals and who were the Asheroth, the answer is that the Baals were the male fertility gods of the pagan tribes, Canaan, and the Asheroth, and this was only recently discovered, as a matter of fact, within the last generation, we now know that the Asheroth were their female counterparts, and they were the consorts of Baal, of the Baals. So you had the Baals and you had the Asheroth, and they were, you know, in their divine or pagan, idolatrous way, uh, sexual with each other. And what happened, you see, was this. Whenever God was abandoned, whenever he was forgotten, the idols of the surrounding culture took his place in the hearts of God's people. And whenever that happened, whenever God was forgotten, there was simply no limits on moral depravity. Everyone was fair game. Nothing was sacred. Family wasn't sacred, children weren't sacred, marriage wasn't sacred, the word of integrity was not sacred, honesty was not nothing was sacred. Everyone was free to do what was right in their own eyes. Everything else and everyone else simply was a means to my end. And I think that is the challenge, I think, for the church, for all people, but I'm talking about the Christian church today, that when we find ourselves growing up, maybe deeply blessed with Christian truth and security of a Christian community and environment, and then we walk away from it in our hearts. We begin to forget God because there's so much else in the world, and why are we being, you know what, impinged, uh, uh, you know, constricted by this, by this terrible faith in, in, in God that most people get along fine in the world with, and they don't even share. When that happens, what the door is open to is this decline, this declension, this spiral into depravity. And even as deliverers, the judges themselves reflect this downward spiral that follows from forgetting God. Aside from God's particular purpose for them, giving, him, giving them his Holy Spirit to do that as the Spirit came upon them, Scripture says that five or six times, still these judges remain the product of their times. If you look at the table of the judges that I've supplied you with, you'll find that the book of Judges has 12 judges. But if you spend time looking at the table, particularly the scripture references in the right column, what you'll see is that six of those judges are hardly mentioned at all. They're mentioned, but that's it. Three verses, two verses, or in the case of Shamgar, one verse are devoted to them. We know almost nothing about those six judges. 
But then there are the six judges we're told something about. We have Othniel, the first judge, who is presented positively, at least neutrally, if not positively. Then we have Ehud, the left-handed judge, who is treacherous and brutal. We have Gideon, who introduces idolatry to his people at the end of his life. We have Jephthah, who bargains with the Lord like a pagan and sacrifices his daughter. We have Samson, who was called to be a holy man from the womb, called to be a Nazarite, is what, those, what that title, what that person was called to be, Nazarite, under Nazarite vows, but who treats his calling with contempt, who binds himself to pagan women, who is impulsively violent. The only other of the six judges who's mentioned there is Deborah, and I think she's probably the most commendable, but not so much as a judge as for the fact she was a prophetess, but we'll come to that. That's who these judges are, the ones we're told about. This is not a book of heroes. It's another message. It's a message about what God did because he had purposes so far greater and so far higher than any of the players on the board that we're told about in this book could imagine. Well, what are some key lessons from the book of Judges? What does this teach us? What are we to take away? Well, obviously, I suppose I could say, don't be like the judges. That's pretty good, isn't it? And it is a warning to every generation of the church, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But I do want to draw your attention to a couple things that I'd like you to think about. I'd like you to think about these things with me. And the first thing I'd like you to think about with me on a personal level is, don't make it easy to grow up in the church and forget God. Don't make it easy for rising generations to take the cross of Christ and his forgiveness for granted. Like that first generation born in the promised land took their redemption for granted. Don't make it easy. The truth of the gospel can't be passed on unless it is accompanied by repentance and faith in the teacher and repentance and faith in the learner. God is a covenant-making God. And his covenant of grace extends down through generations, the scripture says, to those who fear him and keep his commandments. But fearing him and obeying him, which is to say truly to believe in him, that is not an option. And salvation, the redemption of our souls, our bodies, our being for eternity from the grip of the idols and the depravity that follows from being idolatrous in our hearts, that salvation is for each generation to claim afresh for itself. And what is critical for us when we talk about repentance and faith what is critical in repentance is returning to and in our faith learning, really learning and following Scripture, the Word of God, rather than turning away from it. Seeing this book for what it is. It is not the Bible. That's not what it's called. It is called the Holy Bible. 
It is God's word. And it is holy. And it is sacred. And we take it to our hearts in that way. In our understanding and in our ignorance. We take it to our hearts in that way. And we look to God. And we listen to him. And what he so plainly said. We don't forget it. We don't have a Bible. We study the Holy Bible. And I know that runs against the irreverent grain of our time. It is a holy book. It comes from God. And you can't teach it unless the, it can't be learned unless the teacher and the learner is a repentant and faith-filled person. And redemption has come afresh to them. And that is a longing of their hearts. You can be sure, too, of this. Let me say it plainly. God will test you in this. Whether you're a child or a youth or an adult. Just as he said to Israel in Judges 2, chapter 22, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by those pagans who've been left behind. Whether they, Israel, will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. Now, you say, well, what's the reality of that for us? I think there is a reality in that for us. And I think that the reality in that for us is that the church of Jesus Christ exists today after 2,000 years only because of the persistent grace and kindness of God to the church in spite of itself. Church history includes conflicts and compromises that still affect us, that we live with, whether we are aware of it or not, that we are, I'm saying, are still contending with. Those heresies of old keep revolving into the life of the church. They keep being introduced again and again and again. The unbelief, the depravities, the tolerance for sin, the tolerance level. This, there's a history of it in the church. We will not be delivered from it short of Christ's return. We are being tested in every generation within the church as well as by the culture in which we live. It's simply the truth. You will be tested. The second thing I want to draw your attention to, and I invite you to think with me about this, is not in terms of personally and spiritually, but I'd like you to think with me about this in relation to the nation and the world <clears throat> in which we live. Like Paul says to Timothy, I certainly say to you, he's my Paul, pray for your leaders that God will use them for his glory. Pray for your leaders that God will redeem them, both nationally and internationally, in the church. Pray for your leaders that God will bless them. And when your leaders lead well, you be thankful for them. And when they don't lead well, you be respectful of them. But do not identify your Christianity with them. Do not assume the fate and the future of the church rests on them. 
because it does not. All the judges were flawed. All of them were actually deeply flawed. Even Olsniel, even Deborah. It was only by God's good hand that they had success in protecting Israel, listen to me, from outside threats. But not a single one of them had the moral or the spiritual constitution to war against the enemy within, to denounce the sins of the nation, to call their people back to the Lord. The future had never depended upon them. The future of the church, the people of God, you understand what I'm saying, never ever depended on them. Those leaders were as caught up as the rest of their culture in the sins of the time because they were the product of their time. And we are in the same situation today, I tell you, as a church of Christ. The same is true today of the leaders of our nation. Regardless of their party, regardless of their promise, do not get caught up because you will be misled. Among the kings of Israel, later, the positive impacts of the best of the kings, how I love Josiah, how I love Hezekiah, the positive impacts of the very best of the kings lasted a very short period of time. The welfare and survival of the church never depended on we don't look to king. And we don't need a strong man for our security. We look to the Lord. And we need him. So we pray. We thank. We respect no matter what. But our welfare does not depend on that. What does it look, what does it look like to say, we look to the Lord. You can't find it in the book of Judges. But then, as I pointed out earlier, the period of the Judges is not limited to the book of Judges. I mentioned 1 Samuel, where you'd meet Eli, very bad judge. Samuel, the best of the lot at the end. But even before 1 Samuel, what do you have? you have this story appended to the book of the Judges. And this is the way the story begins. It begins this way. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And then from that introduction unfolds the story of beautiful Naomi, amazing Ruth, and the very noble Boaz. In those times, they were the meek of the earth. Easily overlooked, humble people who are passionate to fear the Lord, to love well, if you know the story, to love fiercely well, to honor the truth and practice mercy in ways that went beyond the bounds of anything the culture or time would ever expect. And little did they know that living in the way they lived would actually lead, ultimately, 
through offspring, to the birth not only of David, but to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so I look at the book of Judges, 21 chapters. I look at the book, little book of Ruth, four chapters, and it is such an encouragement to me because in the end what I'm told and what I ta- I'm taught in this is blessed are the meek of the earth. God saves the world through people like this. And in the midst of the darkest and most disturbing periods, it is ever true, blessed are the meek. These are the ones in the house of God who are the vessels not of earth and clay, but the vessels of gold and silver whom God uses for his very highest and most noble purposes. No matter what, up there, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I'm telling you, we are not only to be satisfied with that role, we are to rejoice in it. Let's pray together. Father, we have children and youth, maybe adults in the church. You know, they grow up. and Church is so taken for granted. They, what's the point of the church? And yet it's in and through and by the church that you're doing your most remarkable works in the world. But they're small works. And we tend to despise the day of small beginnings. When the things that are accomplished aren't by, aren't by might, but, and they're not by power, but they're by your spirit. But this is the ethos of the Holy Spirit in your word. This is, the, this is where salvation and redemption are worked out and come. And everything else is about that. Father, help us in our minds and our hearts and confusing and I think in many ways a downward spiraling time, yes, but please help us in our hearts not to lose sight of the fact that you are, as the book of Judges says, you are the judge. You are the ruler. You are the Lord. And our worship is of you and when we are tempted to follow other gods we will not do it when we are tempted by things we see or hear in the church we will not do it we understand you are testing us and it's in our testing and in the pressure and in the turmoil of that pressure We learn about you. And we learn the truth about ourselves. Great God, we love you. Amen.